Coffee Carmen Connection is about being human. It's about you choosing to prioritize your well-being, putting the time in to strengthen your resilience to adversity, and being part of a community that holds you accountable and offers support when the going gets tough. Our podcasts bring expert insight and real-life experiences together for you to enjoy and learn what it is that makes us human and how to work with it. Hello, Zoe. Thank you very much for coming on the Coffee Calm Connection podcast. I'm super excited to have you here. And a lot of people listening will already know your face and your voice through some of the webinars we did um, through 2020. So thank you for coming. It's really here. It's lovely to be here. I'm really excited to have this uh, opportunity to have a really in-depth conversation with you. We do have some great conversations. We do. We do. I thought what might be really interesting is if you could basically give us your journey, because I know that you've had some struggles with uh, depression, stress, anxiety, like many, many people have. And your journey would be quite interesting to see how you've overcome those, what sort of things were really um, pivotal in in you uh, working through. So I wonder if you can talk us through your life. Yes, yes, absolutely. Right, strap in. Okay, well, I guess I'd always been quite um, an anxious child. So I recall um, bedtime, I recall being very, very nervous um, when my mum went downstairs. And I would, I was probably about nine years old when I had my first panic attack. And I would get really panicky when there was no one else upstairs. I'm really worried. But then the rest of my childhood, you know, everything seemed to be kind of fine until I went to um, secondary school. And I think things started to really come out there and there would be lessons that I was particularly worried about. And, and interestingly, do you know, I haven't actually thought about this for a very long time, but it would be around the way the tables were laid out. So, you know, if you've got your typical kind of two seats, two seats, two seats going back from the teacher, that was fine because no one could see me. But some of the classrooms were laid out kind of in a horseshoe. And so everyone was looking at you, you know, if you spoke up in class or or whatever else. And I can remember having sleepless nights the night before those lessons. It was French where they did that. And terrible anxiety in school during that time. And then I would often on those, it was on Thursdays, I would often um, tell my mum I was sick so I could stay home. I was absolutely terrified at the time of blushing and I didn't want I couldn't kind of speak up in class I couldn't answer questions and if someone pointed something out so the whole time I'd be sat there thinking no one they're going to point out something on me no one no one look at me no one do anything and that would kind of build up and then it was it was quite it was a bit of a rough school so people would be you know throwing paper airplanes around and so so if something hit you you know then everyone's going to look at you so it was the kind of unpredictability of knowing that that someone could potentially do something that's going to mean everyone in the class is going to is going to look at you and then obviously if that did happen and then I blushed and then everyone in the class would be you know oh look so he's gone bright red and you know so that was I suppose one of the first things that or, or ways that my anxiety kind of unfolded in my kind of daily life and that just got more and more extreme 
to the point where I couldn't eat in the mornings before going to school because I was so nervous. And I would just I just remember sweaty palms all the time. And and sometimes I don't even know that there was necessarily a reason that I could put my finger on. I just didn't want to be there. Um, and so, yeah, that that was how I remember the beginnings of it all. Can I ask you a question on that, Zoe? Because that's obviously very articulate in terms of a childlike memory. So that's obviously something you've been able to articulate later in life. But your early memories are that of emotional signaling. So you are noticing at that early stage in life the emotional signals your body is trying to give you to say something's not right here. And that's one of the things I think we lose as adults. Mm -hmm. So I just I wanted to reference that because I find it really, really interesting. So how did that manifest itself, I suppose, in in early 20s, early adulthood and and what kind of experiences do you have or do you remember from that, those periods? Mm-hmm. Um, well, there's a few. So I'll pick, <laughs> I shan't bore you. I'll try and pick um, the, the ones that will be the most relevant. One of the big times that, was, that had a huge impact was when I worked for a think tank, um, a criminal justice think tank in London. So I was in my late 20s and I'd, got a job in London which was a big thing I'd always stayed working around Essex before then and so I was moving up to London so I moved up I'd got a shared house with people that I didn't know obviously and I started this job in a a very kind of eminent think tank Uh, and all of a sudden was going to the home office and was meeting heads of the probation service and the prison estate and you know just really important people and I felt completely overwhelmed and completely out of my depth um, and that manifested um, I started to become very agoraphobic so um, I couldn't really or I, I did but it was extremely difficult to get on the bus for example to get into work I'd get on the bus and then there'd be so many people around obviously kind of rush hour in London and um, I'd start getting really hot and I'd feel my heart palpitating and I'd have to get off the bus and calm down a bit. Often I'd have full bone panic attacks on the bus, but I guess I'd had so many of them over the years, I could do that without causing a scene, if you know what I mean, kind of just really internalise it. And then I would get to work and uh, do you know what uh, probably one of the hardest things was, is the exhaustion. So just feeling as if, I can remember describing it to my boss at the time, um, as if my body was made of lead and I was walking through treacle. So every step was just exhausting. And once I've got into work, obviously, I'm then having to write write research reports and comment on different things. And my brain just wasn't functioning properly. You know, it was extremely difficult to absorb that level of complex information, remember things and turn it into something that I could kind of speak about or write about in a, in a cohesive manner so although whilst I didn't panic whilst I was in the office I just felt almost like it was too much effort to even sit up like I, I was just I completely unplugged and then um, I would go home and kind of desperately wait until my flatmates got home so that I'd have people to talk to but then it was difficult for them as well I think because they realized 
how difficult I was finding everything. And then it, I think it became a pressure for my housemates. And so they ended up kind of staying away a bit. You don't realise, I think, when you're in the midst of being mentally unwell, that the impact on those around you is quite substantial and quite exhausting and quite draining for them. So, uh, and at that time, you probably might want to put a trigger warning up at the beginning of this, but at that time I was um, self-harming. So I was cutting myself and burning myself. Um, And that was, for me, people self-harm for different reasons, but for me that was about um, almost like a suicide prevention. I felt like I didn't want to be here anymore. And the absolute despair and feeling like you're completely backed into a corner and there's no way out. For me, the self-harm just shocks you out of that a little bit. It releases, you know, all sorts of different chemicals and whatever to so that you feel different. I guess there's um, the endorphins and things that are released when you're in pain. And, and that just allowed me to kind of continue. But obviously then there's the kind of shame and the guilt and everything of what you've done and then you end up feeling worse about yourself. So um, it's not the most helpful um, tool, as I've discovered. No, you've touched on so many different elements there of sort of extreme, um, I want to call it extreme desperation to get out of a situation. It's understanding being sort of imploded by the emotional signals that your body's going, help me. But you, a couple of things you said, you know, internalizing your anxiety. And I, I had a, a, a meeting with someone that was really, really interesting. And what he said was, if you internalize any intense feelings, it comes out in different ways. So one of the things he was trying to point out to me is why do I think my back and neck are always going and I'm always at the osteopath? And it's because I'm internalizing certain feelings. And and I suppose um, that's kind of what you're explaining, obviously, in a more extreme way, the method to release some of that. That's incredibly open of you. And I really am really grateful that you've shared that with us because that must have been a really difficult time. It was really tough, but I think that, you know, at that time I wasn't talking to people about it and it was hidden and it was secretive and um, I did later get to a point where I told work what was going on. I mean, not the exact details, but I told them about the anxiety and depression. But what I found, it was probably about 10 years ago that I started opening up about my mental health and being really honest about it. And actually, I've only ever found it to be a really positive experience, even if it's discussing things in the in the right context that are really quite dark. I've always found it to be incredibly positive. And I've always found the reaction, whereas you in your head, you imagine often that people are going to be saying or thinking, oh, my God, you know, that person's a freak or or that person's, you know, a complete failure or whatever it is. Actually, when you are really open and vulnerable and honest it's the exact opposite and you kind of get this team of cheerleaders around you and you get people coming out the woodwork saying oh my god I can't believe that you've talked about that that's exactly how I felt or my partner's going through this or whatever and it just it connects you and you know one of the things that we're so lacking in our society is proper deep meaningful connection Um, and I know that's something that you're really well aware of and interested in and one of the ways to to really 
develop our connections is, is by being open, being authentic, being vulnerable. And so it's really, it benefits me to do that as much as it benefits others to feel like they're not alone. Absolutely. So one of the conversations I've had recently was with somebody who we were describing often um, the superficial nature of a working environment can contribute to mental health because or mental health problems because of that lack of real genuine connection and, and sort of almost the unspoken competition that's that prevents any of that vulnerability being shown. And you have to almost be like a robot. You have to be the same every day. You have to be as effective, as competent every day. You're not late, regardless of the situation of the, you know, travel or whatever. You're not showing emotions because of stuff that's going on at home. You have to be this kind of robot. And we're all trying to do that. And none of us are that. I had a, um, so on social media, I don't generally put much about sort of vulnerabilities I suppose but I had a moment this morning and I did and I suppose I was looking for a a method of brain splurging the overwhelm just to get rid of it because I was trying not to direct it I suppose at my children and I've had an awful lot of really positive feedback because I know everybody's going through that at the moment I know you are given the you know without wanting to date the podcast too much the middle of lockdown homeschooling work blah 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 and and how intense that is on your emotions your overwhelm your ability to function and I was really surprised by the response that I had and grateful that I had done something that was opening up for others to go do you know what I I can't do this either I don't know which way's up so I, I think that connection is so important and being real and being human and being vulnerable and But the flip side is also true. We're too scared to be vulnerable, but we're too scared to go, do you know what? I absolutely owned that. Well done me. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. It's that negative inner critic that keeps us keeps us kind of in check from not actually feeling good about ourselves. (laughs) But also the fear of judgment. And you are as judged if you shout from the rooftops about achievement as you are if you open your vulnerabilities. And I'm just going to qualify that sentence to say our perception is that we are as judged for both of those things. And in actual fact, maybe not. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, no, I think that's incredible. So one of the things that you have done and you have done over the course of a lot of hard work and time and repetition is taken yourself from that really dark place to a different place I'm imagining there's bumps on the road talk us through it I remember being sat at home and um, watching on the news the launch of an organization called Action for Happiness and Action for Happiness is um, a worldwide organization Um, they're based in London um, and they're all they're research-based So the idea is that they look at the latest research into happiness and they translate it and make it kind of easy to understand for the layperson. And they encourage people to set up local happiness groups where where they explore these ideas. They set up happiness cafes all over the country. And it's all about learning and practicing 
the things that psychologists have found to be the most important things that we do to improve our happiness and our well-being. Um, and they do lots of kind of online events and things, so they're, they're well worth checking out. But I remember watching the launch of that and thinking, this is something I need to get involved in. This is something where I can find out exactly what the latest research is saying about why I'm so miserable <laughs> and anxious. And um, there's all there's so many tools that I can use to to put these into you know effect in my in my everyday life. At the same time, I started going to a meditation class um, and began learning mindfulness. And I found this to be incredibly calming, peaceful, helpful for my brain because I think up until that point, my brain had never had a break from that inner critic, you know, or from the fear monster or whatever you want to call them. It constantly, constantly be going, even if I was, looked like I was kind of at rest and relaxing, my brain would be kind of going, 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 going. And so I think it desperately needed that little bit of peace and quiet that meditation gave it. So Essentially, I did an awful lot of reading and research into mindfulness and positive psychology. And I started to put what I'd learned into practice. So, for example, gratitude being one of the one of the key things that positive psychologists have found increases our happiness. And I know that it's something that you're going to do some or possibly have already done some um, work on. Essentially, um, it can sound pretty lame, really. Oh, just focus on what you're grateful for. It's not about that. It's about training your mind to shift its mindset. My mind, I would have said that I was born or made into a, a natural kind of glass half empty person, you know. And now I would say I'm a glass half full person. And I believe that I have rewired my own brain in that direction. And so a gratitude practice is very simple, but it is about even on those horrific days when you do not want to get out of bed, when you're struggling with panic attacks, when the world feels like it's caving in on you, you find that glimmer and you find that little bit of light. So it might just be, and, and very often for me, I had to think about, to find what I was grateful for, I had to think about what would make the situation worse. So I would think, right, I feel all of these things and I feel horrendous, but I've got food in the cupboards. I'm not in abject poverty. And then I could, and then I could find, okay, so I'm grateful for having the ability to, to feed myself and not be starving. Or, you know, that I've got, if I'm cold, I can put the heating on, you know, rather than I'm freezing to death. <laughs> And feeling like this. So in the beginning, that was how I could find what I was grateful for. It was by finding what would make the situation worse. Because <laughs> I couldn't find anything I was grateful for. <laughs> but the more you start to do that, the bigger and bigger the impact. So I started with the, the typical kind of three things a day that you're grateful for. And there's all sorts of different techniques you can do. So you can write a letter to the person that you're most grateful for. And then you can phone them and read them the letter and, and kind of hear their hear their response. 
I did things like that. I thought about um, what am I most grateful for in situations that I found particularly difficult. So even though I'm on the bus and I'm panicking, what things am I grateful for at this moment? And I kept a, a written diary for quite a while, but then eventually I found that it became habit. It became natural, so I didn't need to keep the written diary anymore. And and what I find is now it, it's just completely automatic. So I notice, I've trained, it's almost as if you're putting a different set of glasses on. So I notice automatically the things that I'm grateful for. So in the mor- this morning when I drove the kids to school, the sun shining through the leaves was just exquisite. It was a beautiful morning. And little things like that. And I um, treated myself to a hot chocolate. And I sat and I had 10 minutes where I was just just me, just the hot chocolate. Um, and and like, so that I could really taste that and really enjoy that. So it's those, it's those tiny things that become habit. And then your world seems different. So your world feels like it's full of goodness rather than full of horror. Is that something, though, that you have to keep topping up, as it were? And let me explain why I asked the question. You can cultivate habits and you can make things almost automatic, but often you find you slip back into old habits very, very easily unless you've got your eye on the game all the time. Does that still happen to you or are you now so entrenched in the new habits that the old ones have totally gone? Yes, I mean, I don't, I think I'm so entrenched in it. I, I wouldn't say that the old habits have gone because I certainly notice if I'm having a bit of a dip, which is normal, then it's e- much easier to slip back into seeing all the negative. But that is only a very temporary state. And I just find that naturally I do it with everything. So, you know, I've, um, you know that I'm doing my master's at the moment. and um, that's been really quite stressful with everything that's going on and trying to fit that in with homeschooling and everything. And I had to defer one of my modules because I couldn't quite get them to get the assignment in on time. And, you know, there was a bit of beating myself up for that and whatever, but then it, without consciously thinking about it, I flip into, but my God, how lucky am I that I could do my master's, you know? It's just automatic now. But I did, when I say I sat down and wrote my three gratitudes every day, I did that probably for a year. That was a long period of kind of rewiring. And then when I when I realised that I didn't need to write it down anymore, still every day as I woke up, oh, look at that, the sun shining. Oh, isn't it nice and toasty? You know, whatever it is. It just became really habitual. So I haven't found the need to kind of, go back but also because I talk about these things as well and teach and and whatever I guess it's all it's very often at the forefront of my mind anyway so there's two things one is an anecdote I want to share with you and the other one is on the 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 now teaching these um practices I'm telling you that because when I forget in a moment what the second one is you can remind me but I had a conversation with one of my kids not that long ago about pathways and roads and if you can imagine sort of a grass uh, field and if you walk on the same part of the field over and over and over again it starts to develop a path if you keep doing it it develops 
really something that's quite recognisable as a, as a strong, defined path. And I was trying to explain to her the way the brain works and sort of the, the belief system or the habits you have. So if you continually go down the negative things and you notice the negativity and you notice when I told you off and you notice when I gave two biscuits to your sister and not to you and you notice all of these things, you'll develop an idea that actually I don't like you very much. But I'm just going to point out some of these other things that have happened that if you chose to focus on, you could start to walk on a different piece of grass Mm -hmm. and you could start to make that pathway. And actually, if we could try and walk on that pathway a bit more, your entire belief system would be, my mummy loves me very much. Um, And I sort of gave examples of both. Um, I can see how this might make you feel this way. But did you notice this part or this Mm -hmm. or this part? And I was trying to explain to, you know, a young child this Mm -hmm. this idea because there's glass half empty everywhere you look. And it's quite easy to fall into that. It's also quite difficult to explain to a child and and to open their eyes. So, So anyway, that was the anecdote. Can I just interrupt you on that one? Um, so I did something with my two um, to try and shift them out of a bit of a negative mindset. And we just, I've got these kind of clear plastic weird sheets that are like static and you just put them on your wall and you can write on them and whatever. And then you just take them off again. And so we had one of them up on the wall in the lounge. Uh, and I can't remember what we called it, something silly like lovely things. And we recorded, we had to record every day um, something lovely that someone else in the family had done for us. So it was just to get them to notice because my two were boy and a girl, you know, bickering and fighting and whatever. But actually, well, notice when when your brother did this for you. Oh, yeah, I'm going to write that on. And then the brother would kind of say, guess what else he did for me today? And then we'd write it down. And then I would include me in that. Look what mummy did for you today. <laughs> <laughs> you know because then it just shifts the focus um so that was quite a nice little little activity that we could that we could all do together I think I think those kind of things are so important and so incredible sometimes I find them quite hard though because if I was to suggest and I have before suggested things like this to my kids they go out their way to not do it or to sort of make it difficult so I don't know I almost have to explain the science and then right you get on with it and see what happens but I think that could just be a, a phase of where we're at at the at the moment I love yes. the idea of the, the clear sheets and maybe yeah, I could try and very good but also not making it like a like a formal homework task or something you know there's no problem yeah yeah have it up on the wall where you eat so when you're eating together you can all go, and you don't even have to ask them. You could just say, oh, Isabel did something lovely for me today. I'm going to put that on the chart. Oh, Daddy did something really nice for me. That's going up there. And then just watch the conversation. Lead by example. Yeah, rather than, you know, right, you're going to write something nice about what your brother did for you. <laughs> <laughs> you know me so well. <laughs> Very cheerful. <laughs> the other thing, the other sort of uh thing I wanted to ask how you think about it is so there's a lot of ways to integrate something into your life Mm -hmm. and one of the things that I find very 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 difficult is I want to eat well 
And I have to give that 110% of my focus to make it happen. I want to exercise and I have to give that 110% of my focus. I want to be mindful and meditative and I have to give that, you probably guessed it, 110% of my focus. I've got three businesses, they need 130% of my focuses and I've got three children, they need 150% of my focus. And what I I see happen a lot, and and I've got numerous friends that have done this, is they've sort of embraced, for example, the fitness lifestyle and have then become fitness instructors. instructors. Mm -hmm. So it is absolutely in their lifestyle. You've done it. You've embraced that positive psychology, mindfulness lifestyle and now teach it. How does somebody, and this is where Coffee Calm Connection has come in to deliver the sort of the five minute boosts and keeping the process alive through short bursts. How, how? Well, do you know what? I think you've said what is the key point. It's small, short bursts. It's micro steps, Sarah, because we can't do everything. We can't be the perfect wife, mother, career woman, um, housekeeper, chef. You know, this is too much for one person. So when you want to make changes, one of the reasons we often um, fail, or not fail, but fail to kind of keep up with things in the long term, is that we set the goal too high, right? Everybody knows about, right, I'm going to set a goal and I'm going to have my smart targets and I'm going to have some accountability and da 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 da. But if you set a goal, do you want to just share what your goal is? Because I did this did cross my mind when I saw your post over Christmas about what you're doing with your running. So my goal, uh, and I'm going to qualify it as I speak to you. So <laughs> my my goal is because I am very good at the big stuff, okay. and I bite off a lot more than I can chew. But it's fast and it's done I'm going to do a half marathon there for the next three months I've got to train like a bat out of hell so I can do the half marathon in time x right I've decided to do the end-to-end uh Le Jog challenge which is Land's End to John O'Groats it's 874 miles over the course of a year the idea behind that is because small process driven cumulative frequent regular you can't eat an elephant in one bite. You've got to take mm-hmm. off chunks. So one of the things that's happened is so coffee, calm and connection and all of the research and the planning that and conversations that have gone into that, which I know you're very well aware of because you're <laughs> one of the conversations I'm having regularly is about developing something that people like me who have a million and one things going on can actually commit to because it's not all seeing, all knowing, all everything. It is literally incremental steps. And and, and the key is the incremental steps for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to redefine my my goal setting in exactly that way. That's interesting. I didn't realise it was it was set out like that. It seemed horrifying when I saw it. But that's because that to me is just, I, I just, I don't think I could ever do something like that. But that's, but you know, we, we've got the differences between us that I think make make this kind of 
thing work particularly well. But so, so yes, it is. It's the small steps. Something with, for example, mindfulness. It's better to sit and practice mindfulness in a couple of three-minute blocks than it is to sit for half an hour. Your your brain will train itself more in small little bursts, like learning a musical instrument. And I've used this analogy before, but you don't learn a piano for half an hour once a week and then wait till your next lesson. You do little bits every day, little bits every day, and your brain starts to rewire itself. So I think that's the first thing. Set your goals, set your smart targets, but have them, I would say, like micro micro goals, things that are it's really tiny little things. So something like, you know, I'm really rubbish at eating breakfast in the morning, which I know is a really terrible way to start the day. So something like my goal would be something like um, I'm going to eat a banana before I leave school. Not right. I'm overhauling my diet. I'm going to do meal plans. I'm going to make sure I get my five fruit and veg a day. I'm going to do smoothies, you know, because that's setting myself up to fail. But I can have a banana in the morning. And then a week or two in of doing that, okay, yeah, that's that's good. That's that's my habit. I'm going to introduce um, a smoothie on top of that or a salad for lunch every day. You know, so it's that small incremental little micro steps that lead to change. And there's also um, something about when you fall off the wagon, when you haven't gone on a run for two weeks, not kind of giving up. I know you wouldn't, but not kind of, beating yourself up about that because the next day is a new day and you just start again why are you giggling <laughs> because I almost came out in hives at the thought of not running for two weeks as soon as you said it I felt my my emotional signaling was screaming oh no you can't possibly not run for two weeks that would be absolutely terrible so I mean I'm talking about the incremental steps I've got a long way to go to get the mindset right but what's really really interesting is to hear how your story has developed from young, young age through to a really critical, difficult period where it could have gone either which way. And what I'm hearing from you are or is the things that made the difference are number one, you made the decision to research and learn and understand what actually is going on in the brain and why. And number two, you put processes in place, small doable goals on a daily basis to get better and fast forward 10 years you've got your own well-being uh, business uh, two kids that you obviously do amazing things with and I'm going to take your suggestion away to try it with mine so I think it's really incredible well done you very much thank you very much it's certainly been an interesting journey but it's I think it helps that I'm fascinated by the mind and by development and and I really believe that even people, when you're at the point of um, feeling genuinely suicidal, there's a spark still inside. And it's just kind of finding ways to reignite that spark, to kind of encourage it to, to burn. And I think, I think we've all got that. Um, and I look back on everything. And again, it's a, it's a kind of another layer of the gratitude stuff. But um when I look back on difficult times, it's almost as if I can see a, almost like a little kind of river of silver going through them. I don't know if you've seen these um, jars. Do you know what I'm going to say? And I think, are they Japanese? And they break them and then they put them back together with, with silver or something. And it looks beautiful. And it's it's all about 
that kind of analogy and metaphor comes to me you know in looking at those difficulties they were the real moments of learning and growth and development and finding self-confidence there's something else I haven't mentioned which was actually for, for me specifically one of the key factors um, and it's an element of mindfulness but it's self-compassion and I'll I might have told you this story before Sarah but when I first learned uh, mindfulness and self-compassion I was at a Buddhist center so if you haven't done it before you essentially there's, there's a number of people that you bring to mind um, so for example your best friend and you bring them to mind and I always imagine that I haven't seen them for a year or so that feeling that you get when they're kind of there, that feeling of kind of love and warmth and joy, that's the feeling that we're trying to cultivate for ourselves. So the first time I did this and they said, bring a picture of yourself to mind. And all I could bring to mind was um, a picture of myself dead on the sofa. And that's what I saw. So I kind of, and this was a 40 minute sit. This wasn't just a kind of like five minute thing. So I spent the 40 minutes kind of just tears streaming down my face in a room full of people I'd never met before. I mean, we all had our eyes shut, so it didn't matter. But um, and it was all I could do in my mind to kind of pick up this dead me in my arms and just we repeat these phrases. So we repeat, may I be happy? May I be well? um, May I find peace? So I was just repeating these phrases over and over again and almost kind of like rocking this dead version of myself. And um, by the end of of the meditation session, the the dead me took a breath. And and that was the first time I'd ever learned about self-compassion, turning compassion towards myself. And I would say that that, a year of that practice was transformative, transformative for me. I think everyone who's got mental health issues should be looking at doing some self-compassion work because we beat ourselves up terribly for for feeling bad and not being able to function and cope like everybody else and you know all of this so you kind of layer on guilt and shame and and all of that to yourself I don't actually think it's everybody who's got mental health issues I think it's everybody because I think everybody struggles with anxiety guilt shame at some point or other so I, I think just learning to be a bit kinder to yourself is incredibly important and I just wanted to touch on something you said earlier that the Japanese jars I think the um sort of concept and I'm not sure how to pronounce it so uh anybody listening please feel free to tell me Aikigai and it all comes from a town in in uh, Japan where they have the highest concentration of centennials because of the way they live their life and it's all about it's all about finding beauty in everything particularly the used or the broken or the refurbished it's all about um eating till you're 80 percent full the right kind of foods and actually it being really important to be out talking to people in the community which is which is part of your day job like that you know it's something that is integral to who they are as being so there is a book called Aikigai it's incredible I think it's Hector Garcia, P-U-I-G-C-E-R-V-E-R, and Frances Frances Morales. Okay. Will you put a link to that in there? Because I might have to get myself a copy of that. 
I shall put in the show notes mm. that particular book. On that note, Zoe, it's been incredibly interesting to talk to you. And I am so grateful for your sharing what must have been an incredibly difficult time in your life. So I really appreciate your time. Thank you. No problem at all. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to share it and to talk to you. And it's been it's been really positive. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Your reviews, shares and followership is incredibly valuable to us. If you'd like to know more about our work through Coffee Carmen Connection and how we can support you, please email us at hello at coffeecarmconnection.org or follow us on social media. Thank you.